Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers. And we are back to talk about more gateway horror in November. Right. And this was our number two. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a better way I could have said that. (laughs) Well, could be accurate. But yeah, so we are here to talk about another gateway horror movie. And this week we are doing Legend, which is a 1985 American epic dark fantasy adventure film directed and initiated by Ridley Scott. Oh, initiated. <clears throat> hmm. It stars Tom Cruise, Mia Sarah, Tim Curry, David Bennett, Alice Platon, Billy Barty, Cork Hubert, and Annabelle Lanyon. The film revolves around Jack, a pure being, who must stop the Lord of Darkness who plots to cover the world with eternal light. Although not a commercial success when first released, the film would find its audience after its release in the booming 80s home video market and through repeat playing on cable networks. The film has gone on to become a cult classic, especially after the director's cut was discovered and released. Especially. All right, listeners. We require the solace of the shadows and the dark of the night. Sunshine is our destroyer. This is legend. Okay, drama bomb. (laughs) There is a balance to the universe. The struggle to maintain that balance is the stuff of legends. For there can be no good without evil. No love without hate. Life needs death. Innocence feeds lust. There can be no heaven without hell. No light without me. I am darkness.
In order to cast the world into eternal night, the Lord of Darkness, played by Tim Curry, sends the goblin Blix to kill the unicorns in the forest near his castle and bring him their horny horns. Told by Darkness that the best bait is innocence, Blix and his colleagues Pox and Blunder follow Princess Lily, played by Mia Sara, as she visits her forest-dwelling fuckboy Jack, played by Tom Cruise. There, Jack teaches Lily to speak to animals and make out, then takes her blindfolded to a forest stream, where he senses the unicorns will appear. When Lily holds out her hand to touch the stallion, Blix shoots him with a poison dart from his blowpipe, and the unicorns flee. Jack is angry, but Lily laughs off his concerns and issues a challenge by throwing her ring into a pond, declaring she will marry whomever finds it. While Jack dives in after the ring, the goblins track down the poisoned stallion and sever his horn, causing winter to come all over everywhere. Lily runs off in terror, and Jack is barely able to break through the surface of the now-frozen pond. He made a jackhole. <laughs> I'm gonna bust right through this pond. I'm gonna break off a piece of this jack. Lily takes refuge in the cottage of a peasant family that is now frozen in time. While there, Lily sees the goblins test the horn's magical powers and overhears how she was the bait in their slaying of the stallion. She follows the goblins to a rendezvous with Darkness, who tells them that the world cannot be cast in the eternal night as long as the surviving mayor still lives. Blunder unsuccessfully tries using the horn to overthrow Darkness and is sent into the castle's dungeon. Meanwhile, Jack, accompanied by the forest elf Honeythorn Gump, <laughs> the fairy Una and the dwarves Brown Tom and Screwball finds the mare mourning over her castrated stallion. Lamenting over his role in the current predicament, Jack apologizes to the mare who communicates to him that the horn must be recovered and returned to the stallion by a great hero. Deciding that Jack is that hero, the group leaves Brown Tom to guard the unicorns while Jack and the others retrieve a hidden cache of ancient weapons and armor. In their absence, Lily warns Brown Tom of the goblins coming back to kill the mare. He is then incapacitated by the goblins who capture both Lily and the mare. La mare! Upon returning, Jack and his group make their way to Darkness's castle. On the way, they are attacked by a swamp hag named Meg Mucklebones, played by Robert Picardo. <laughs> but Jack defeats her by flattering her appearance and then decapitating her. At the castle, Jack's group falls into an underground prison cell where they encounter Blunder, who is revealed to be a fairy gone wild, before he is dragged off by an ogre to be baked into a pie. Una uses her magic to escape their cell and retrieves the keys to free the others. Meanwhile, as Lily roams the castle seeking warmth and escape, a dark, dancing entity appears to tempt and turn her into a gothic version of herself. Darkness orchestrated this to claim her as his bride, and, seemingly seduced, she agrees to wed him on one condition, that she'll be the one to kill the unicorn in the upcoming ritual. Overhearing their conversation, Jack and Gump learn darkness can be destroyed by daylight. After a series of blunders, they save Blunder. The group takes the ogre's giant metal platters as makeshift mirrors to reflect sunlight into the chamber where the mare is to be sacrificed. As the ritual begins, Lily tries to free the mare, but Darkness casts a spell of sleep. Silence! <laughs> Jack's group redirects the setting sun with the platters as he fights Darkness, 
finally wounding him with the stallion's severed horn right before the redirected sunlight shines into the room, blasting darkness to the edge of the eternal void. Darkness warns them that because evil lurks in all beings, he will never be truly vanquished. Wavering in doubt, Jack finally severs the hands of darkness, thus expelling him into the void. Gump then returns the stallion to life by magically reattaching his horn. With the stallion reunited with the mare, winter suddenly ends. Jack retrieves Lily's ring from the pond and places it on her finger, waking her from the spell. They run off into the sunset while listening to crappy pop music. The end? (laughs) Yes, please. And that's not even the correct ending, which we'll get to later. That's right. There are two endings to this film, one of which is much better than the other. We did watch the theatrical cut, and uh, I watched, again, the director's cut, which is far superior, in my opinion. I tried to cast away my nostalgia boner in order to uh, better appreciate the director's cut, because there is a special place in many people's hearts for that Tangerine Dream soundtrack, you know, but if you let yourself... You'll enjoy a far better film if you watch the director's cut, which you will definitely be getting into later. That's right. And he did show me selections of it, and I feel like I've seen a big chunk of that director's cut. So when we get into that, yes, we'll be talking about those two films, their differences, and how it affects one's nostalgia boner. Yep. Legend was released in the United States on April the 18th, 1986 on almost 1,200 screens. The film earned over $4 million opening weekend, securing the number one spot at the box office. Other movies in the top ten that weekend included The Color Purple, The Money Pit, Critters, and A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Legend would retain the number one spot the following week before dropping down the top ten. By May, it was no longer charting. Ultimately, it would gross $23.5 million against a reported budget of $24 million. Almost. Almost there. Mm. I think at least $2 million of that twenty-four had to have been on Glitter. I think so. And I also think they must have made gangbusters on that booming VHS market. For sure. Legend holds a 41% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience score of 73%. It's quite a difference. The site's consensus reads, Not even Ridley Scott's gorgeously realized set pieces can save Legend from its own tawdry tale, though it may be serviceable for those simply looking for fantasy eye candy. Audiences surveyed by CinemaScore gave the film a grade of C+. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times praised Botine's makeup and... Aston, 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 Gorton's set design and the performances of Tim Curry and Tom Cruise, but noted that the effects were so good that the roles could have been played by almost anyone. I disagree, mm. at least in Tim Curry's case. Yes. Uh, Ebert also said that the movie was composed of all the right ingredients to be successful, but that the film simply doesn't work. He went on to say that all of the special effects in the world and all of the great makeup and all of the great Muppet creatures can't save a movie that has no clear idea of its own mission and no joy in its own accomplishments. 
I kind of agree. <laughs> yeah, in a way. <clears throat> um, theatrical version, at least. Yeah. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said that it's a slapdash amalgam of Old Testament, King Arthur, Lord of the Rings, and any number of comic books. Kevin Thomas of the Los Angeles Times praised the visuals as a sumptuous, richly covered feast for cinematographer Alex Gordon's camera, but thought the film surely could have used more humor and invention. Kim Newman of the Monthly Film Bulletin wrote that, quote, like Blade Runner before it, the film suffers so much from an overemphasis on details at the expense of the actual story that it becomes a plotting bore. Hmm. Gene Siskel uh, must have been talking about the original cut of Blade Runner 2. <laughs> really? Which actually sucks. <coughs> yeah, it has all this like film noir like narration over it, like mm-hmm. voiceover from Harrison Ford and all that stuff. Director's cut way better. Yeah. We should learn anytime Ridley Scott's involved, go for the director's cut. Pretty much. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune gave the film half of one star out of four and stated that writing the review was akin to recalling a bad dream, concluding that I don't want to remember any more about legend than to make sure I include it in my worst films of 1986 list and never rent it when it comes out on video. The film has been described as the extinction event that discouraged Hollywood from making fantasy films. <laughs> and we had a dearth pretty much until the late, late 90s or early 2000s. That's true. With Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter both coming out in 2001. Yep. This movie sort of killed everything, didn't it? Yeah. Um, it does have some accolades or almost accolades at the Academy Awards, Oscar nominated. This was nominated for Best Makeup, but it lost to The Fly. I still think this could have won. Yeah. Like, I think the makeup effects are really, really good. Yeah. I mean, The Fly is great, too, but awesome. like, I feel like there's artistry here versus they're you know making Brundle Fly is pretty much just like playing with Play-Doh. Well, and I also <laughs> feel like like the set pieces in this like probably are Oscar-worthy as well. Yeah. I'm not sure why it wasn't nominated for production design at the right. very least. My God. Costumes, even. Yes. Weird. At the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Costume Design, Best Makeup, and Best Special Effects. And at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Makeup and again, Lost to the Fly. Yeah, I'm not sure why I'm not seeing production design. Maybe that was before production design's time. Yeah, I should look that up. I probably, because I was wondering it when I was none of these. writing I that mean, down. Today it would have won. For sure. <laughs> you know? They created that entire fucking forest. So let's talk about the development of this a little bit. Yeah, I don't know much about how this movie came to be. Like, just as a side note, like, I obviously we're talking about gateway horror this month, right? And so these are movies that Chris and I watched as kids. Sure. And I watched Legend a lot when I was a kid. Like, I was fairly, like, obsessed with it. I saw it on cable for the first time. I was like, what is this? mm -hmm. I recorded it off cable onto VHS Mm -hmm. and subsequently wore that tape out. Like, I watched it a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, I just thought it was the the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I'd never seen, like, a live-action unicorn before. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when darkness came out of that mirror, I just, my jaw dropped to the floor and I never quite recovered. Yep. And I, I, I feel like that character of darkness is great. And we're going to get into that a little bit, but with that being said, I haven't seen this movie probably in like 30 years. Really? Yeah. That it, long. It's been a very, you very wore it out time. and you wore yourself out and didn't and then come I back to never it. watched it again, but I have, I had so many fond memories about it, you yeah. know? So, I mean, definitely a nostalgia boner. And, you know, as we get into this conversation, we'll talk about how sometimes nostalgia boners can completely change over time. Loved by the sun. <laughs> Damn it. But you always know uh, all the best information about how movies came to be. So lay this on me. Uh, so while filming The Duelists in France, uh, Ridley Scott conceived of legend after 
uh, another planned project, his Tristan Assol fell through temporarily. And uh, however, he believed that it would be an art film with a limited audience appeal. And uh, so he went on to make Alien and then did pre-production work on Dune, which was another of his halted projects, which of course eventually finished, was finished by director David Lynch mm-hmm. and created that movie, which has a whole other you know thing with Giger and everything. And a lot of that was used on Alien. That's right. So I just think that's funny that he just like took that with him. And so he got frustrated, you know, and he came back to the idea of filming a fairy tale or a mythological story, especially after he did Blade Runner, where everyone hated the stupid unicorn at the end. So he had to throw it back <laughs> in their face. Have another fucking unicorn. Yeah. I don't know if it's like passive aggressive unicorn, but it's a unicorn. I mean, this movie really is a fairy tale at its core. Yeah. So. And he wanted Legend to have an original screenplay because he he thought, quote, it was far easier to design a story to fit the medium of cinema than bend the medium for an established story. So he didn't want to do anything that was already written or told or known. For inspiration, he read all the classic fairy tales, including the ones by Brothers Grimm. And from that, he conceived a story about a young hermit who is transformed into a hero when he battles the darkness in order to rescue a beautiful princess and release the world from a wintry curse. Yeah, that's almost what the movie is. Yeah, pretty much. So in 1981, just before beginning principal photography on Blade Runner, he spent five weeks with William Hjortsberg. That's the one. <laughs> uh, and he is a novelist that did like things like Gray Matters, Toro, 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 Nevermore, The Georgia Peaches. Like he wrote those those novels that were, I think a lot of those built into movies, right? Um, I Toro, 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 for sure, I yeah. think. I think the Georgia Peaches was done into a uh, TV series. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, anyway, he was working on a rough storyline for what was then called Legend of Darkness. And it eventually went through 15 script revisions going back and forth while Ridley was working on other movies, obviously. So the look Scott envisioned for Legend was influenced by the style of Disney animation. And he had even offered the part uh, or the project to Disney, but. They were intimidated by the film's dark tone at a time when Disney was still focused on family-friendly material. And visually, Scott referenced films like Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio. So some of the older, more darker Disney films, I think. Well, I also feel like in the in the mid to late 70s and early parts of the 80s, Disney was making dark movies. I feel like they had probably just come out of the Black Cauldron. Yes. And parents and everyone were hating on it. And said it was too dark for their kids and their kids were too scared and to go back to the simple pleasures of earlier Disney film. Yeah. I mean, but like even things like Fox and the Hound from that time period is, is yeah. dark and from like an emotional sense. Like I feel like Disney in the seventies and early eighties was, was very, very dark. Like I can list off tons of movies that we would consider to be horror adjacent. Yeah. That was like the great rodent detectives or whatever the fuck they the great are. Mouse detective. Yeah. yeah. With, Yeah. That was dark. They did a lot of darker stuff and maybe they were trying to pivot, you know, because this is the time around this time they were trying to pivot. And this is when they started development on things like The Little Mermaid that would come out in 1989, which was seen as the great resurgence of Disney in animation because they kind of went downhill in the 70s and 80s because people were like, they're too dark and it wasn't large appeal. And then they started with Little Mermaid and did this like grand slam of back-to-back hits with like Aladdin and Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. The Oscar nomination for that. All of those within like 10 years of each other. Right. But yeah, you're right. I mean, like in the 80s, Disney had a a very big slump, right? And so I feel like them passing on this is probably best for them. Probably so. so, given, you know, 
this and i do see some of darkness in fantasia oh definitely. certainly and the not on bald, bald mountain for sure or whatever it was but i also see in this story I, I see more than just like Grimm's fairy tales i see lord of the rings i see dante's inferno okay you know um and especially when it's referenced like they did not have to put this detail in there but darkness is constantly referring to his father mm-hmm. right this is not an end-all be-all origin of evil this is something that came from something else but it's always kind of alluded to and i think of the stories where that's the case you know uh and i think of lord of the rings uh and the silmarillion and things like that and i think of other stories where the the great evil came from a uh, from a first even greater evil right versus if he was talking about god as satan then he wouldn't be praying to god for you know to give him even further darkness or whatever and he wouldn't be getting like recommendations from god to like woo her and like (laughs) make her one of us (laughs) there's seemingly something that god probably wouldn't say out loud to somebody yeah and there's a lot of like visual weirdness in here especially in the director's cut that alludes to some things like some sort of transformative nature of sitting in that that gross mutating oozing chair yeah that chair looked wet and glittery and oozy and, and like pussing and blah, blah, blah. and it was like but you don't see that in the theatrical version you kind of see like the drippiness of the back of it yeah right but not to the extent that you see in the director's cut so no yeah. so he then hired alan lee who was of course the conceptual artist for lord of the rings and an oft times tolkien artist right um, as a visual consultant who drew some of the characters in sketched environments, but Scott eventually replaced him with Ashton Gordon, uh, who did the production design and actually would be on set versus Alan Lee is more of an artist, mm-hmm. you know, so he wanted someone with a little bit more technical skill, I think, and to be able to like make things work in real in real life with actual like props and sets. So a production designer, really. And so this guy also did like French Lieutenant's Women, Rob Roy, 101 Dalmatians. That's a huge variety of stuff. Throw in Legend in there and he can do anything. You know what I mean? And so he had always wanted to work with this guy. um, And he wanted to work with him for both Alien and Blade Runner. But he, I guess, worked with different people, including, of course, for Alien, uh, Giger. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to me that he ended up with such iconically looking films with Alien and Blade Runner, but didn't work with the one he wanted to. <laughs> so, well, and this one is especially iconic looking, I feel like, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> all these sets clearly were created, right? Like they're not filming in an actual forest, but it looks like it. Yeah. And most people don't know that. Most people don't realize that every stick of tree that you see <laughs> in this all the running water, all of these trees, all of this grass, all of the pollen, all of the birds and animals um, that you see on screen, all of it was on a soundstage. And that's crazy to me because it looks so good. They had crazy like birds flying around in there like that they didn't they didn't bring home or lock up at night. You know, they actually had like an ecosystem on this fucking Seriously? set where they <laughs> Yeah, because uh well, we'll get into that later because there's some there's some there's some shit that went down. Okay. They were like, oh, shit, we lost the fox. Everyone, where's the fox? What does the fox say? What does the fox say, Jack? Me off? (laughs) So Scott hired Gordon ultimately because he knew, quote, all the pitfalls of shooting exteriors on a soundstage. We both knew that whatever we did would never look absolutely real, but we would very quickly gain its own reality and dispense with any feeling of theatricality. I don't know what that means, but I, I think what he, he meant was to we're never going to make it look real, real. So we're going to go in an interesting, different direction and make it look fantastical and surreal and just like overproduce it. And it looks amazing. 
Yes. So, I mean, what I feel he means is that we can never make this look like the real world, but we're going to create a world of our own. Exactly. Which in turn would be real because we've created it. Exactly. Yes. And it does look amazing. Mm -hmm. And you could tell, like, all the fucking intricacies of this production design. And it is impeccable looking. Like, they have created an entire world out of nothing. And, and they've got it. fires. They've got people throwing torches in there. I mean, uh, they've got flowing water and exploding things. They have lots of moving parts, trap doors, things that move, things that go up and down, pulleys. Weather. Ladies. They cover the whole thing with snow, glittery, right. glittery snow. Glittery snow. Glittery sweat. There's glitter everywhere. I'm sure those actors are still digging fake snow and glitter out of their various crevasses. That's right. Every single ass crack still shines to this day when the light hits it just right. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) For real. So when it came time to cast, there's some interesting names that I noticed. Okay. What are they? Johnny Depp. Oh, okay. Jim Carrey. This would have been very early. Wow. For Jim Carrey. Well, Jim Carrey made a, like a horror comedy around this time called Earth Girls Are Easy. No, it was before that. It's about a vampire that, I mean, it's really, it's a really funny movie. I love that movie, but that's like the first thing that I remember Jim Carrey and was once bitten. So it was right around the time that legend came out. Interesting. Yeah. So he was up for it. So was Johnny Depp. And so was Robert Downey Jr. Okay. those are all kind of big names. They were all considered for the role of Jack. Okay. Yeah. And so while, yeah, I don't know. I can't really, I could see any, any one of them. It doesn't matter. He's not really a character. He is the audience. That's true. Although I can't see Jim Carrey doing this. I really can't. I don't know. I mean, anything would have been better than the stack of, you know, twigs or whatever that Tom Cruise was. In this movie. <laughs> There's so much Tom much Cruise thigh in this that I like. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty to look at. Prettier than Jim Carrey would have been. But. I mean, he's essentially running around in a very long short. Like, all you can see is, like, thigh, almost ass. Yeah, that's true. He even gets that armor, and he just takes the top on. He doesn't even put the hands on. I know. It's just like, again, he's just now it's just what a shinier for? dress. What are pants for? <laughs> Who needs pants? I'm Jack of the Green. <laughs> <laughs> so while Scott was considering Richard O'Brien, who played Riff Raff in uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, to play Meg Mucklebones, who he actually didn't hire because he hired Robert Picardo from Voyager, the doctor, hologram doctor <laughs> from Voyager, which is amazing to me. And of course, the Texan from Inner Space and a variety of other roles, uh, which I, when I found that out, I just was like floored. I was like, that's Robert Picardo playing Meg Mucklebones, the Swamp Witch. <laughs> Tender morsel, disturbing red muckle bone dress. They call me Jack, ma'am. And what a fine fat boy you are, Jack. You don't really mean to eat me, do you, ma'am? Oh, indeed I do! (laughs) Well, and I feel like so Robert Picardo also played a pretty pivotal role in The Howling, right? Which was also a Rob Bottin-led makeup yeah. movie. And so if Rob Bottin had already worked with him on extensive makeup that oh, covered yeah. the entire body, clearly he'd have been like, hey, I have just the guy for this. Like, he can do this. Because that is a lot of It's almost better than darkness. It's almost as iconic in a way. If it had more screen time, like, it's just yeah. as good work. I mean, I remember being scared yeah. by Meg. Meg was it. scarier than darkness. Yes. I kind of, I mean, as a little gay boy, I felt, I felt a certain kind of way about darkness. I, was I mean, like, like, what was this? Yeah. <laughs> but no, I see that. And like Richard O'Brien, while I love him and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, like I don't, I don't really see him doing this. I mean, it's a very small part. It takes 
minutes what a backfire it's like well i don't now that i watch rocky horror picture i don't want you anymore but i do want tim curry (laughs) because that's when he noticed tim curry and was like okay uh this is an actor that would be ideal to play darkness because he had film and theatrical experience and you know it it ended up just great you know because i can't see i can you know any actor could have been under that amount of makeup but the way that tim curry speaks the way he delivers his lines is iconic looking upon these frail creatures One would not think that they could contain such power. One could rule the universe with it. You must find them for me and destroy them. There is only one lure for such disgusting goodness. One bait that never fails. What be this bait? Please, you teach me. Innocence. Innocence. And, you know, his makeup as darkness and legend is considered to be one of the most iconic images in all of fantasy cinema, if not all of cinema. And I would completely agree with that. I feel like this this villain is really neat to look at. And I feel like Tim Curry brings a lot to this particular role. Yeah. Like you were saying, the way he delivers his lines, it is it's theatrical, it's Shakespearean almost, right? The facial acting from this person, like even though he's like completely covered in makeup. And horns and like those cute little ears that come out underneath the horns. I mean, but he is, he's acting his fucking ass off under this makeup yeah. and it's just brilliant. It's brilliant. So super intentionally cast you yes. know, in, in that role. And of course Meg, cause they had to find the right people to put piles of prosthetics on, mm-hmm. but that could, they could act through it, you know? Yeah. And so he found the perfect people. Um, apparently he's discovered Mia Sarah. Like she hadn't had roles really previous to this. Which I thought she had for some reason. Maybe I'm it was a little later. I'm sure that she maybe have had smaller something or other. Because I feel like Mia Sarah had a moment in the when, 80s. Yeah, when was when was uh, Ferris Bueller? Like was it 87, later? I think it's after. Okay, Legend. so after this. Yeah. So it said that he discovered her. And it was a casting session where he was impressed by her um, good theatrical instincts. Okay. Well, if that's true, then I mean he did he did the eighties a service by yeah. bringing us Mia Sarah because she's <clears throat> she was a serviceable actress in the eighties. I really enjoy her in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but she has a lot more yeah. to do there, you know. And I'd say her role is the worst cut, the biggest casualty of the theatrical cut in a way. Now that I've seen some of these scenes, I would agree with you. Yeah. Because almost every one of her scenes is cut because it, sh- it it cuts out like that. She's a princess, that she has responsibilities, like that uh, her father wants her to do certain things. And it cuts out some of her lies that she tells Jack, like this little manipulations. She's a little bit more conniving and precocious at the same time. So she's a much fuller character in the director's cut and that, and she sings songs and none of that is in the theatrical version. Well, and, and the songs are part of the fucking plot. That's right. I mean, and if you think about fairy tales, even some Disney fairy tales, that is how like princesses kind of acted in fairy tales. They have especially like, you know, they're well to do and they're like mixing with the common folk or whatever. They still act like rich and conniving in some sort of way. Right? Yeah. In, in fact, she's in the forest kind of as an escape. And mm-hmm. you get that in the director's cut much more than you get it in the theatrical. Yes. The theatrical version pretty much just she's there. You know what I mean? And I think the only time that I heard her referenced as a princess in the theatrical version was when darkness is talking to her. And I just assume he was calling her princess because he wanted to marry her. Like a colloquialism. Or right. So, like kind of like a cutening. Yes. Listen, princess. Yeah. <laughs> Especially coming from Tim Curry. <laughs> Listen, princess, you're going to sit in that chair and you're going to like it. Tim, that's very 
expensive scenery. Could you please stop chewing it? <laughs> but no, I mean, like... Glitter in your teeth again. <laughs> we're going to get into the differences between these two versions, but I mean, like, you're right. Like, her, her, her role in that director's cut is much, much better. And I feel like that helps the story out a little bit because she's not... She's not likable. She's not unlikable. She's just there. She's just there. Yeah. And that is a waste of character. That's what I got from the theatrical. I was like falling asleep. Mm-hmm. You know, as a kid, it was like in rapture. You know, I'd never seen anything like it. Correct. You know, but now seeing it as an adult, I was just like, the story is happening to these characters. Mm-hmm. Like more story is happening. And that was it. Versus the director, there's a the director's cut is a way more nuance and less exposition, but somehow more story. And more is being told. It doesn't have the stupid title cards at the front. But enough of that, because we still have to talk about the sets and the makeup and that's right, you know, and all the process uh, to get to this movie before they even had a chance to cut it. So let's move on to makeup. Yeah. Uh, so Scott contacted Rob Bottin, who had designed the special effect makeups for The Howling, of course, with Robert Ricardo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he wanted him to work on Blade Runner, but Bottin was already committed to John Carpenter's The Thing. Thank God. Thank God. God, which was amazing and actually ended up putting him in the hospital because he worked so many hours overtime with with only like a diet of candy bars to get all those effects done for the thing, which thank God, because it's an amazing work, Mm -hmm. uh, some of the best work to this day in practical effects. And, uh, you know, presumably as he was in the hospital, he was working on (laughs) legend stuff. Jesus Christ, this man. <laughs> yeah. So Scott told him about legend and toward the end of production on the thing, Boutine read a script for the film and saw an excellent opportunity to create characters and starring roles with his effects. And that's right. Cause he's all about creating like a top to bottom look when it comes to practical effects and characters. Like he's really good at creating just like makeup, prosthetics, costumes, all of it. Yeah. So with the exception of Cruz and Mia Sara, all the principal actors spent hours every morning having extensive makeup applied. So between eight and 12 prosthetic pieces were applied individually to each face uh, and then made up, molded and grafted into the actor's face so that the prosthetics moved with their muscles. Each person needed three makeup artists working on them at the same time for an average time of three and a half hours spent applying those prosthetics. Actor Tim Curry took five and a half hours because his entire body was encased in makeup and prosthetics and the film's most challenging character design by far. Although I would say uh, Meg might have been a little bit more difficult or tedious because he had to be in a harness floating and they had to control his up and down side to side movement because he didn't have legs. Whereas Tim Curry had to be on stilts. That's crazy. I can't imagine having to work under those. At least for stand-up shots. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I could see how like Meg would be a difficult thing to to wear and do, but having no bottom part to it. I've seen some shots where they're only doing like medium or headshots of Tim Curry, and it's just like him and his like torso ends, Mm -hmm. and his normal stomach is like painted red a little bit, and then he's like wearing boxer shorts or whatever. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) I love seeing behind the scene pictures of uh, Tim Curry getting makeup done, right? Because there's a lot of that for it, right? The miniseries, like this man has been put through the fucking ringer when it comes to like costume design and makeup effects. Like it's like they see Tim Curry and they're like, let's just cover all of him up. The whole face. Just do it. I don't know. Yeah. And he's really super iconic. I mean, we might as well talk about that now. I mean, he's played it. Mm-hmm. He's been, of course, Dr. Frank Frankfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's right. Uh, he was in a Muppet movie, so he's been dressed as a pirate. Uh, obviously, Darkness from Legend was his most iconic makeup. 
And Wadsworth the butler from Clue. We cannot forget that. Yeah. He was also in some other Pulp Fiction, kind of similar, like The Shadow. Yes. He was in Home Alone too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's been in a lot of things. And I feel like he's still well regarded within the horror community for all of these. Like, he's made a lot of genre film, right? And um, we we'll have a poster here somewhere behind me with all of his roles on it. It's great. That we got at that uh, convention. I then. believe he signed it. Did he? I think they were pre-signed. Yeah, probably. Because he wasn't on the floor of that convention. Because no. obviously his health is not good. Yeah. But he is still incredibly active on like social media. He's retained his wit and is quick and likes to interact with fans. And um, that's good. He's, he's not going to be able to work anymore. But his entire history and filmography is just so, so good. And he's left left a lasting impression on all things pop culture. Oh, for sure. But he had to wear a large bull-like structure atop his head with three-foot fiberglass horns supported by a harness underneath the makeup. And so the initial design of the horns placed a strain on the back of his neck because they extended forward, iconically, and not straight up. But uh, Botine and his crew eventually reduced the weight of the horns, and at the end of the day, he spent an hour in a bath in order to liquefy the soluble uh, spirit gum stuff they used Oof. to glue the prosthetics to you. Right. And at one point, Curry became claustrophobic, panicked, and pulled the makeup off too quickly, tearing off his own skin in oh. the process. Oh, my God. And so Ridley Scott had to shoot around the actor for about a week as a result. Jesus Christ. Being an actor is hard. Reminds me of the story of, of uh, Jim Carrey, actually, because when he played the Grinch, they actually brought onto set – Someone for uh, like a military psychologist mm-hmm. or someone who was a specialist in torture, yeah, and how to deal with torture. Jesus, because he was so claustrophobic and so hot, and so he could only see like a, a, only a small uh, angle in front of him because because all the prosthetic he couldn't breathe through it. He couldn't, mm-hmm. and he was in it for like sixteen hours a day, and so he said it was like the worst experience of his life. I can imagine. I would not want to be in that much makeup. I mean, like one once a year at Halloween is one time. And even then, it's nowhere near what these actors have to go through. Yeah. So according to Boutine, at the time, Legend had the largest makeup crew ever dedicated to one project. I can see it. I can totally see it. And you, I mean, and it shows too. I mean, this is one of my favorite things about this movie is the way that some of these characters look, right? The larger scale ones, right? Like Darkness looks really, really good. Meg, as we've already talked about, looks great. I feel like Blix looks pretty cool and kind of slimy and gross. Um, like the the pig one, you know, I'm like, okay. Well, that's a good point because it's like, if you think about like, say, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, most people are human, right? right. Even the hobbits in Lord of the Rings, just like ears and feet and wigs. You know, and then there's a dwarf with some some prosthetic, but mostly like the the elves and the men and and all those people. You know, there's all those orcs and stuff, right? But principally on screen, you have most people that are in kind of normalish makeup, right? You know, with a few prosthetics. With this, only two people in this movie. Every single other person had to wear mountains of makeup and prosthetics and go through hours. Literally everyone but the two the, the two leads. Well, I would say to an extent, also like Gump. And the fairy kind of, they just look like they're styled, right? They have ears and stuff attached. But you're right. Every every other speaking part in this, for the most part, is like a walking makeup. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the sets a little bit. Okay. The entire movie, like we just said, outside of the underwater footage, of course, was filmed on sound stages, including the entirety of the forest and its myriad of birds and animals, flowing water and weather effects. 
So principal photography of that began on uh, March 26, 1984, on the 007 stage Hmm. at Pinewood Studios. But on June 27, 1984, with 10 days of filming left on the stage, the entire set burned down during lunch break. What? How? We don't know. Probably the lights. You know, could have been. If you watch this movie, like they have all kinds of debris going Mm -hmm. around constantly. Any one of those could have gone into one of the gigantic set lights above or gone on fire. Maybe a bird went up there and like chipped away or a squirrel went up in there and fused a wire. Maybe the lights reflecting on the mountains and mountains of glitter reflected and yeah. caused a fire. <laughs> no, I, I think actually it might have something. I think the theory is one of those birds. Really? Like, yeah. Cause they had all those birds on set constantly. And so if they were in the shot, they were in the shot, you know, we would never do that today. I think. Yeah. And so reportedly the flames from the set, uh, fire leapt more than 100 feet into the air and the clouds of smoke could be seen five miles away. Mm. But as I said, it occurred during lunchtime. So no one was hurt. That's and funny. I remember seeing this footage. It was massive. Like this fire just burnt this whole fucking thing to the ground. So that would be all of it. All of it. The entire soundstage, everything they built is burnt and yeah. gone. So he, he had to quickly make changes to the shooting schedule and only actually lost three days moving to another soundstage because they hurriedly put portions of the forest together from scratch oh my god to finish some of these look at ridley scott what a resourceful director i mean if this were well really the design team that was able that's to true put you're those, right you know they probably had extra trees and shrubbery and he know, probably put all those people in the hospital boutique style <laughs> shrubbery <laughs> let's just get some shrubs and some rocks and we'll call it a day well i still don't know the toll on like those birds did they birds like were they able to escape were they oh. animals like we don't know really where I'm assuming the birds were able to, like, get out. That's sad. Okay, I hope so. The oh, bear. What of the bear? That's sad. <laughs> that's sad. I think the bear and stuff, I, I believe those things have handlers. You know what I mean? No, I know. I was just making a joke. But still, I mean, like, the fox, though. No. Um, that's crazy. And I feel like other directors or teams might have, like, I don't know, broke down. If this were being directed by Kubrick and it was already two years over... Well, it's only time. It speaks to what we mentioned earlier, which was like that apocalypse moment, mm-hmm. right? Where people were like, this fantasy is too much. We can't do That's it. Right. The whole fucking set burnt down. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe they got a big insurance payment. Maybe. But um, let's, let's start talking about what we've been talking about briefly this whole episode so far, which is the hackening. The hackening, the of hackening the, of the American version. Yes, we've been talking about it briefly. We've been talking about it the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> again and again, briefly. <laughs> many, many brief times. Staccato. <laughs> yes. So um, now that I have seen, I, I would say that a great chunk of the director's cut with you, I can safely agree with you in saying that this movie was fucking destroyed for an American theatrical release. Yeah, and I don't know if as a kid I would have agreed. You know, and I remember no. seeing it for the first time because I loved Jerry Goldsmith. It came out, uh, they found an answer print, right? Mm. So this is not something they can like really rescan and make into like 4K, right? Um, like they can the theatrical because this is an answer print. And so they can clean it up. They can make it look nice as much as possible. And it looks great to me. It looks just as good. Yeah. Um, the new scan that Arrow just uh, released um, looks amazing. Uh, although every fucking point of glitter, I mean, you think the director's cut has glitter like you saw in the theatrical. I don't know if you saw the newest rescan, though, if you have the which just came out this last year. 
So when I watched it, so I, I own this Blu-ray and I've never once opened it. I bought it many years ago. Okay. So this is the ultimate version that you got. They released the ultimate version. Once yes. they found the director's cut, mm-hmm. the answer print, they included that in a two disc uh, or a, a one or two disc or whatever. And I think they were actually on the same Blu-ray at that time. Yep. And maybe two different DVDs. And so eventually they came out with the ultimate edition of Legend on Blu-ray, which is what you have. And then um, just this past year, they were able to, Arrow was able to go back in and rescan the original footage for the theatrical cut. And it looks amazing. And that's what I watched. And every fucking point of glitter, I've never seen so much glitter in my life. Well, it's already noticeable yes, even before this like scan. But it is. But like, it's insane. That is not the version that I watched. And though. you can see the string holding up the light for the fairy in some scenes. I did see that though when I was watching it. So ultimately, I mean, this is a silly anecdote and something I told Chris. Like there was a mist setting on my TV or something like that. And it looked very soap opera-ish from my Blu-ray. Yeah, the frame rate was off on TV. And I was just taken out of it. So I stopped watching it for the night. And I was like, I'm just going to rent it on Amazon. And it was fine. It looked much, much better on the TV. Yeah, so um, something was wrong with the Blu-ray settings on your TV. We know I need to fix it for you. But uh, when the fairy is being cupped in Gump's hand or whatever, I was just like, is that a string? Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, come on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, while we're talking about, we talked briefly about being bored, right? And so while I was watching this movie last night, finally, in a, in a version that didn't completely take me out of it, I was hideously bored in this movie and did not care yeah right up until not i wouldn't even say like the halfway points beyond the halfway point yeah so darkness doesn't come out of the mirror until like an hour and seven minutes in yeah this is an hour and a half movie and so one hour and 40 minutes essentially by the time that we have a fully realized tim curry on the screen that's when i was just like okay i'm into it again you know but everything leading up to it at least in the theatrical american version is a slog it is and maybe like again like i said not for kid you know i have a nostalgia boner for this and i had yeah. a nostalgia boner for that original music by tangerine dream you know and all of that i didn't know any different But like I said, when I discovered that they had a new director's cut that they had found, they had found the original version, you know, for the answer print for the, you know, that they had actually released in theaters in England and that it was available for me to watch because you couldn't get it before then. Mm-hmm. With Jerry Goldsmith's refound score, I was just like, okay, I have to check this out. And I ended up loving it, the first watch. And for this episode, I went to Reddit and to see like, which version should we watch? Which, which version are people really talking about and are most comfortable with? And even after 20 years of the director's cut being available, people are like, the director's cut is too boring. The music is 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 boring orchestral. I really love Tangerine Dream. And, I, and the ending doesn't make sense. I really love the happy ending at the end. And I'm just like, okay, pull yourselves together. It's a shitty movie, you know, comparatively, relatively speaking, to the director's cut, which is really, really Scott's intent. It has way more character nuance and everything else. And we're going to get into it. Yep, let's do it. Yeah. So Scott's first cut of Legend ran over two hours long. Jesus fucking Christ. He then believed that there were minor plot points that could be trimmed and cut (laughs) the film down to 113 minutes. Who did he believe that? So he tested this version for an audience in Orange County. And however, it was decided the audience had to work too much to be entertained. And another 20 minutes was cut. <laughs> Good fucking call. And the anecdote there is that he he sat in on that test screening. It was a couple of potheads that came in and was talking about it, you know, or whatever. And 
Um, or maybe it was pot American potheads that he'd saw, seen after it was already released in England because they held the release uh, for America. But we'll we'll get into that as well. So the 95 minute version was shown in Great Britain and the film was cut down even further to 89 minutes for North America. So that's when there was I think there was like the American pot smokers in there and they were just tearing it down and not understanding what was going on. And so he added this exposition title sequence at the beginning, explaining the story, changed the whole uh, orchestral theme, thinking that American audiences were too conservative and it was too dark. And especially after getting that stuff from Disney, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's just he, he let himself I think he gets too neurotic. He gets the studio feedback. He gets audience feedback and he just does not sure of himself. And so that's what happens with all of these things. Uh, He did one. Uh, a few years ago called like um, Knights of Heaven or whatever the fuck it was about the fall of um, Jerusalem or the Crusades. Kingdom of Heaven. Kingdom of Heaven. Which the original theatrical cut is an abortion. And then the director's cut is like Oscar worthy. It's one of the the biggest director's cuts uh, of all time. And it's all in all kinds of director's cuts, top tens list because of that. And a lot of Ridley Scott movies end up there. Well, I feel like Ridley Scott at this point in his career probably is feeling the pressure a little bit, right? I mean, because Alien was such a huge success. Kingdom of Heaven came out in like 2008. Well, I know, but I mean like this. So like, and then he made Blade Runner, right? Which has like six versions. Yes. But was was also fairly successful, right? Yeah. The box office? Well, yeah. I mean, not so much as Alien. But I mean, like he's sort of established himself as some sort of like genre filmmaker who can get some returns on a movie. And of course, if you make something like Legend the way that you want it to, and if you're going to test screenings, I would be shitting myself too. Like no one's going to ever let me make another fucking movie if this tanks. I don't know. But at the time he said, quote, European audiences are more sophisticated. They accepted preambles and subtleties, whereas the U.S. needs a much broader stroke. We certainly do. Do we? Well, I don't. You and I do not. (laughs) But I think Americans in general probably do. So he and Universal ultimately delayed the North American theatrical release until 1986 so they could replace Jerry Goldsmith's score with the music from Tangerine Dream, Yes, lead singer John Anderson, and Brian Ferry. I mean, all big names in music, right? And in film music. But Tangerine Dream has done lots of horror scores, right things like near dark i think they did they they did the music for like firestarter maybe i can't remember but i think that's true um so they're all over like horror stuff but now that i can listen to that score that you show me those scenes it fits better though i mean like just watching those scenes that you showed me today i was like this score makes the movie feel better it does it makes it feel like a film rather than a movie well it also makes it feel more like a fucking fairy tale yes than the tangerine dream score yeah could you imagine lord of the rings with synthesizer i mean i cannot (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i mean i i don't know and then like we were talking about those title cards right at the beginning right that was the longest fucking thing and i totally forgot that existed in the movie right because it's been a very long time since i've seen this so i started watching it and i was just like how long is this are they going to tell me everything that happens in the movie right now? Yeah. Like, I, I was like, I promise you I can infer. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't even know what's going on. The Americans suck. <laughs> Jesus. So Scott allowed Goldsmith's score to remain on European prints. And the composer said, quote, that this dreamy bucolic setting is suddenly to be scored by a techno pop group seems sort of strange to me. <laughs> End quote. Strange to me too, Jerry. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Tangerine Dream, you know, in isolation and parts of the movie work, you know, but it's still at the end of the day, pop synthesizer over a fucking fantasy film. Right. right. And so as a kid, I really dug it and it was different and there's some nostalgia there, but ultimately like we keep saying, it's a better film for the director's cut. So if you can find that, watch it. So normally that said, Jerry Goldsmith would spend six to 10 weeks on a film score, Mm -hmm. but for legend, he spent six months writing the songs and the dance sequences ahead of time. That's sad. Yeah. So I'm glad it's back, but I'm sure he got paid regardless. So in 2000, obviously universal unearthed the answer print of the 113 minute preview cut uh, with Jerry Goldsmith's score. This print had minor visual anomalies that were eventually digitally replaced originally with uh, finished shots from the 89 minute U S version. And this edition is Scott's preferred 2002 director's cut with the restored Jerry Goldsmith soundtrack. The director's cuts source is one of only two prints of this extended version known to exist used for universal's 2002 DVD and eventual Blu-ray, the ultimate edition, like we said. So when I started watching the Blu-ray, the, when you, and I, I chose the theatrical version because that's what we're going to watch. The very first thing that pops up is some sort of like note from Ridley Scott, like disavowing the version you're about to really? see. Really? Yes. That's awesome. Oh my God. I need to, I'll, next time I come over, I'll bring it. Cause I, I turned it on and I was, I had to pause it for a minute cause it goes a lot slower or a lot faster than the fucking title cards at the beginning of the movie do. So I paused it and I read it and I was just like, Oh shit. It's at the bottom. It's like Ridley Scott. And I'm like, fuck, he really doesn't like this version of this movie. Tom Cruise didn't either. He wouldn't even talk about the movie well, until like 2000 when the, the director's cut came out. I can see that as well. So yeah. So let's talk about the actual differences. Okay. So uh, obviously Jerry Goldsmith's score included numerous songs with lyrics provided by the Carpenters, John Bettis with several uh, sung by actually all of them really uh, by Mia Sarah that were integrated into the plot of the movie. So diegetically and all of that was cut for the American version. right and you know what if you're gonna make a fucking fairy tale movie someone needs to be singing something i'm sorry (laughs) it just has to happen so the american version of course features those pop songs loved by the sun at the end of the movie by uh tangerine dream and john anderson from the the band yes and of course the end credits is your love strong enough by brian ferry (laughs) both of these songs really fucking suck i'm sorry they're not not by the sun (laughs) i don't know i don't know if they suck i just don't think it fits no i was watching i mean i'm sorry for anyone who like loves this but when i was watching this last night i was like what like these songs don't even sound good they don't seem like they fit in the movie very well certainly when they're running off into the fucking sunset it makes us Super corny. Yeah, I was just like, you just movie, you just cheapened your fucking movie by having these in there. I have seen the mystics play there once or twice. Well, I knew they had a reason. Enchantment plays its cards all right, hand in hand with the workings of the seasons. 
goodness sake shut the fuck up and i was just like were they like going for an oscar nomination or something like that were they really trying to secure that best original song nom and i was like well if so you should have tried harder (laughs) and wrote better songs yeah so uh obviously we mentioned there's no title card exposition in the british version or the director's cut uh, and there's a lot of character nuance. Like we mentioned, there's a lot of nuance missing from Lily's character. She's a lot more precocious and even manipulative or conniving in certain scenes, which gives her a lot more flavor. In fact, it's her song that draws the unicorn. So she is much more at fault in this version. And she looks back a couple times at Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. uh, Jack, who's telling her not to go. And she looks at him and she like kind of looks at him like, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to sing this song. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And like in the theatrical version, she just sort of walks up and like timidly reaches her hand out, you know, and yeah. it doesn't make her seem like a bad person. She No, they, they, they stripped away all nuance from her character to make her just like this boilerplate princess. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy to me after watching the director's cut. I'm like, there's so many just small moments and cuts that list like half a second, you know, or even like whole minutes in some cases where whole scenes are cut. Everything. So her her main job in the American theatrical version is to sort of like flit and dance around the forest, right? She barely even says anything, but she always seems to be dancing around or like trudging around in the snow, you know, like that's, that's the extent of her thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and she's much more complicit. And so when she is uh, charged with that from, from darkness, mm-hmm. it hits harder in the yep. director's cut. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, color temperatures are darker. There's the editing timing is much less cartoony and abrupt, and makes makes much more sense for like passing time and getting places. Uh, you know, like when they're going for the armor or whatever, it's like, oh, I know the perfect place to find your armor. It's in that hole right there. <laughs> you know, it's like what? <laughs> Versus there's some time, there's some sense of time passing with just simple like two seconds of editing where they're just like walking through the forest and then they get somewhere. You know, um, scenes have much more dialogue in some instances. Like there's a riddle between Gump and Jack. You know, otherwise if Jack doesn't get it, it's it's alluded that they're going to kill him mm-hmm. for what he's done. Uh, there's an extended scenes between Darkness and Lily. There's a much longer Meg Mucklebone scene and a completely different, slightly darker and more ambiguous ending. Yeah, I like the ending a lot better, right? Um, and I know we're going to talk about that probably. We be- will. Uh, because there's there's vast differences. Uh, you mentioned cartoony earlier, and that's exactly what I got from this version, it's especially on this watch. Like we said earlier, like watching this as a kid, you feel a certain way about it, and you may be more attracted to it. Watching it as an adult, I felt this was kind of slapstick in places. Yes. And I was just like, I don't understand why they're taking this route, you know? Like, it's okay to have a very serious fantasy film. You don't have to have all of this, like, comedic relief going on. And there's... A lot of it. And there's still some slapstick in the director's cut, but it's much more balanced. Yes. Because there's so many more darker scenes and and, um, more quiet moments with the characters and the scenery. That's exactly true. And the thing is that like one of my one of the things that I I rolled most hard at, like my eyes almost went to the back of my head, (laughs) was when um, that fairy pretending to be a goblin is like taken down that pit and he's like adios amigos and there had been so much like slapstick comedy going on in the theatrical version up into that point i was just like if they don't fucking knock this off like i cannot you know and then so like watching parts of the director's cut leading up to that moment which is still in the director's cut there's not as much slapstick going on so it actually makes it a little bit funnier yeah because it's not being thrown in your face every five yeah, seconds. Yeah, and then they like kind of they they kind of hang a lantern on it 
in the next scene because like Blix is like, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Forgive that intrusion, great lord, but goblins are inclined to be outspoken and I like to encourage their initiative. The unicorns are dead. Is this not true? True, lord. Very plenty true. Undeniably true. You lie. Here is dawn. The lines, though. And there's different weird. lines, too, yeah. which is weird. Like, at the beginning with, with Darkness, like, he was like an antenna to heaven, yet another anachronism, right? Mm-hmm. Versus in the director's cut, he just says, pointed straight to the heavens. Right. You know? So it's, like, different lines, too. It's just super weird. I'm like, did they have him do, like, three different versions of each line to see what sounded better? Probably. That's how you make a movie. Or some in post. Because I know the entire movie was, like, basically 80 yard. Yes. And you can tell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... There's also some small details like the the voice uh, of darkness is familiar or father. I, I don't know which coming from some kind of wall or chair back. I think it's that throne. Mm-hmm. Right. And you see the, the glowing eyes of it. And it's the thing that's telling him what to do. And it's also the thing that he was sitting in earlier. It's the thing he's trying to get Mia to sit in, you know, I guess Lily to sit in. Like we talked about some sort of mysterious, like some sort of like transformative mutagenic something that would turn her into a like fucking demon or a goblin or something. Well, that or look, it looked like she was about to s- sit on some monkey pox or something. <laughs> <laughs> I know gross. It was all bubbling and nasty at the very, very least. It could probably sort of, you know, make her more evil through magic or something like that. It was, it was going to do something to her kind of like the dress. Yes. In fact, that's my favorite part of this movie and always has been always probably will be when that dress is like dancing toward her and then dancing with her, right? It's very yeah. obvious that there's somebody in that dress. You know what I mean? They didn't make it look like it was dancing by itself, but it's like one of the most frightening moments to me when I was a kid, and I just really love it. And the Tangerine Dream version of that is like some sort of weird fucking dark c- carny music. Yeah, it's not the same. Versus Jerry Goldsmith's orchestral waltz. I mean, like we've said, like I've said on this podcast many times, I don't always notice score except for like the moments where you really need to notice it, like emotional cues and things like that. But having seen this movie last night and the selections from the director's cut today, it is a vast difference and it's very easy to notice. And it really does make the movie so much better not having some of that synth crazy pop sound because it just doesn't fit. And also maybe because yeah. it's today and not in the 80s. Maybe perhaps in the 80s, we were all like, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was much more normal yes. back in the 80s, for sure. But they also don't reveal darkness until he comes out of the mirror. Which in is the theatrical version. That's a good call. So it's much more of a shocker versus they kind of give you a little bit early in a very cartoony kind of glowy version of him where you can't quite see the details of him yeah it's dark i think it's to shock the kitties less by mm-hmm. giving him them a little taste of what he's gonna look like yeah but i feel like the reveal is better and i don't like it it is scary looking right like it's scary looking makeup but i feel like it's not so scary that kids couldn't handle that kind of reveal in the middle of a movie yeah, yeah. i mean like good luck with meg you know shit i mean after we've seen meg in the swamp and they're like okay it's the devil i've seen the devil in church or whatever <laughs> yeah. i mean like god for real but, I mean, overall, 
there's a much richer and darker texture to the film in the director's cut, and even a melancholy that's completely missing from the American version. Well, because just like you saw on Reddit, you know what I mean? Like, Americans like a happy wrapped up ending. Do they, though? Or is that the, the this idea that Ridley Scott and maybe, you know, studio heads over in Pinewood or something were talking about? I don't know. You know, because we had other movies that were coming out that were dark and, you know, things like that. Maybe not for kids. I don't know. This is it it's kind of a weird it's... time. 1985 is a weird fucking time in American politics. Remember, we've talked about this before. Yes, of course. There's a big switchover with, you know, the Reagan revolution at this time where things got a lot more conservative very quickly. Well, and if you look at just the year before this movie was made, I mean, I know it was released in 1986, but 1984, we've talked about a lot of movies that came out that year, right, on the mm-hmm. podcast. And yeah. we probably will continue to do so because it was a really big year for genre. And a lot of it was very, very family oriented. So I don't I don't know. I, I feel like if he had released the director's cut, at least the critics would have been kinder to it. Yeah, I agree. And probably would have generated more cash. Um, yeah, I would also agree from adults, you know, but I mean, this movie is rated PG, right? And so like, clearly it was, it was geared toward families or children because that's what was being marketed. Like even like the most successful horror movies of this period, things like Gremlins, right? Um, were family films essentially or marketed toward that way. Yeah. And, it, and that melancholy is something that we've seen in a thread in all of these kind of gateway horror movies, or at least a lot of them. Return to Oz had it. Yeah. Obviously, never, A Never Ending Story had it. Definitely. There's a little bit of melancholy in Wizard of Oz, certainly. Um, and as we get into Labyrinth, certainly, you know. And so there's like that weird kind of dark melancholy in some of these darker 80s gateway horror movies. When I feel like a lot of the animated gateway horror movies that we talked about certainly have a lot of melancholy. The Last Unicorn mm-hmm. for sure. Right, Secret of Nim, definitely Land Before Time, American Tale, American. Yeah, I mean, like, of course, that wasn't Disney. Place. No, it's Bluth, right? Bluth. Yeah, so Bluth didn't shy away Let's from make all the kids cry. I mean, that's <laughs> what he liked to do, and he certainly made me cry. I love that man. Mm-hmm. I will credit him with the ease in which I cry today. <laughs> so, do you want to talk about the differences in the endings? Yes, because right. they're legion. So, in the American theatrical version, Jack and Lily assure each other of their love and watch the unicorns reunite, and they run off into the sunset together, hailed by the forest fairies and the unicorns. Darkness watches them from the void, laughing as Orange Nightmare, or whatever the fuck they're called, (laughs) give us some pop music and hack sing us into the credits. (laughs) What happens in the director's cut? In the director's cut, Lily wakes up and uh, with Jack trying to convince her that she was merely dreaming. And uh, she's ultimately unconvinced, but they still confess their love for each other, but realize they live in two different worlds. Lily alludes to continuing a merely platonic relationship, asking if she can see him again tomorrow. Jack accepts and runs off to the sunset as she leaves and the forest fairies uh, uh, and the revived unicorns watch in the distance. So I kind of gathered that it's, I didn't think that she was going for a more platonic thing. I thought that she realized the differences between the two of them, but wanted to continue to see where it goes. She was like, let's just date for a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, I think so too. I don't know if platonic is the right word. Um, I, I feel like she, when she said she's learned something about herself and learned something about him, yeah. you know, like going through that, she was kind of put her down to earth. Right. And so she, she knows she has those responsibilities, you know, back at home with her father and, and her duties that they mentioned at the beginning of the film that they don't in the theatrical. And I think she realizes she says to him that he belongs where he is, mm-hmm. but that she also belongs where she is, yeah. you know, that they should 
accept the responsibilities, but let's see where things go. Can I come back tomorrow? That's right. You know, and I think that's a, a lot better and more realistic and, and uh, ending that kind of honors the who the characters are and what they've been through versus, you know, making out and running into the sunset to pop music together while all the fairies wave at them jumping up and down like their eye on crack. It's like a fucking music video. It's what they created in the American version, right? I mean, who has not been in a relationship where you come to some sort of realization that you have to tell the other one, you know, like, maybe we need to slow down a little bit and see what's going to go on after this or yeah. whatever. It's a, it's a lot more believable. Um, and I don't feel like it's melancholy either. I feel like it's still a happy ending. It's not like they said to each other, we're never going to see each other after this. It's just like, let's just, you know, here, take the ring. It's part of me. And let's see what happens tomorrow. You know what I mean? There's nothing melancholy about that. It's still a happy ending. It's like she needs to rethink her life a little bit. She's like, instead of throwing it away, because it's almost like time reset for her. Yes. You know, it's like, instead of throwing it down and saying, if you catch that, you'll be my, you know, she's not like this flighty schoolgirl anymore. No. She's she's learned a lesson. She's grown up a little bit and she just gives it to him. That's right. She's essentially saying, Jack... How are you going to love somebody if you can't love yourself or whatever they say in Drag Race? You know what I mean? She's come to that realization. She sashays away. <laughs> and and so does Jack. I'll see you when I see you. And uh, <laughs> in case you don't, here's something to remember me by. <laughs> I wonder what happens the next day. You think she showed up? Jack's sitting there waiting. He's got like a fox and a bird. And he's like, where's Lily? And she's like, fuck him. I got shit to do. I got responsibilities in this castle, my own castle. Yeah. (laughs) So I think we've beat this unicorn to death. (laughs) We have. Uh, Do you want to talk some about your favorite moments? Uh, I mean, just my favorite moment. My my favorite moments in this movie really are anytime that darkness is there. I feel like that creates the movie. And his iconic reveal. Yes, is so, so good. It's not just the makeup, right? It's Tim Curry's performance and everything, but it's also the amazing shot of him coming out of the mirror and then leaning down and kneeling down towards her with his cape flowing behind him and everything mm-hmm. in that beautiful set, you know? And it's, I wish he would hold those those scenes a little bit longer so we can just sit, sit there and enjoy and bask in the glory of that cinematography, but they they don't. They just keep the, move, the story going forward, even the director's cut. And I almost want a version that's even more adult where we get to just kind of sit with you know, some of these scenes. Oh, I would like to see an R-rated version of this movie. Oh, for sure. I mean, definitely. And there could have been. And I will talk to you about some of that in the fun facts. Oh, great. Um, other than darkness, I mean, I, I already said it earlier in the episode. I, my favorite part is when that, that that gown is sort of like dancing around with her. And I feel like that is really, really good. I liked it so much as a kid. And really unique. Nothing yes. really like it before or after. Correct. The thing that I don't really care for is once she becomes sort of transformed into like goth Lily, you know, like parts of the makeup design and hair in that particular moment. I'm just like, I don't get it. But I I love it. I love it. I was like, how much Aquanet does this (laughs) so much? Because (laughs) is it it her hair or is it the costume? I can never tell. I mean, I always thought it was the hair when I was iconic. I was like, I remember her seeing her in that dress and I was like, am I supposed to be watching this? But there are some shots. She's literally 16 while she's filming this. Jesus Christ. There are some shots in the director's cut that we were just watching right before we recorded where it's more like close up on the makeup than it was in the theatrical one. And you can see some of the detail in it. And I was like, okay, I kind of get it. She's got like black contacts in too. Right. And there's like subtle black coming out of like the white makeup on her face around the eye. And I was just like, it looks beautiful when you get to really see it and spend time with it right so i've grown more of an appreciation of that transformation just today yeah 
And essentially, like I, I, we've already said everything that we can, but we've we've already said our, our piece about like the forest and how amazing that looks. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about the glitter, so much um, glitter, you know. Uh, but these fucking whale sounds. We didn't mention the fucking whale sounds. <laughs> we just talked about Nightmare on Elm Street too, where they're using whale sounds. Like it's like we discovered whale sounds for the first time in the eighties or something. Because I can think of three eighties movies off the top of my head where whale songs feature heavily. Star Trek Four. Mm-hmm. Well, that's about whales. It's about whales, you know. But they 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 are. What is that sound or whatever? And there's this whole scene about you know removing the salinity factor from the audio so they can listen to the raw whale song. Silence. <laughs> you know, and I remember actually in the late '80s and early '90s there was like CDs or like tape cassettes of like ocean sounds with whales. Oh, it was definitely. like this new thing. And so I feel like it was like whale sounds were popularized as some sort of weird hippie Inya shit back in the eighties. And that's where all this came from because nightmare on Elm street was using it for horror. And this is using it for the unicorns mm-hmm. and randomly for like some sort of magic when darkness is around sometimes. Uh-huh. No rules. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, watch this movie. And just whenever you hear that is the sound of Tom Cruise thinking. <laughs> 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 that's exactly what it sounds like when tom cruise thinks and he looks like it too yeah. he always looks like he's trying to think of something you know what i mean he was just like there's something i'm supposed to do or what should i possibly say he always looks inquisitive every time i see him he doesn't know what he's doing there and then he's <laughs> yeah we talked about meg Mucklebones, although i love her her Foul tasting fairy. She really does have some of the best lines in this because she's like, Who's this juicy fat boy? And I'm like, oh, Yes. Such discerning taste for one so young. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a kiss. <laughs> I love it. I also love Darkness's quotes. I think we had like a top 10 quotes, and I think I included either special mention or in my top 10. Uh, his quote, every wolf suffers fleas, tis easy enough to scratch. I love that line. A lot of things that come out of his mouth are very, very dramatic. And just, I mean, like, germinates within you. It's also, (laughs) like, if you're going to compare... So let's pretend for a minute that you're Lily, right? And you have have Jack, Jack of the Green, who is, like, always looking confused and thinking, like, whale sounds, right? Yeah. And he can barely, like, say anything to her. And then she gets Darkness, who she seems like she's repulsed by or at least scared of. All he says to her is no. Well... Yeah. And then, but like darkness is like, I want, I want to love you. I want to give you my soul. I want, like, he is so Shakespearean in professing his love to her. You know what I mean? Jewels and garments and food. I mean, there's no fucking option at this point, Lily. Like you've already been transformed into that cool black dress. Daddy darkness, hands down. Daddy darkness every fucking day. We haven't even gotten (laughs) to that question yet, but damn it. Spoilers. (laughs) So and we talked about the seduction, right? That dance scene and and, and all of that. I, I do want to say we didn't talk much about like Gump, Una and all them. And I feel like that actor, even though he was 80 yard with the same uh, chick that actually played Blix, that was mm-hmm. a chick. Um, I feel like the actor that played Gump did a really, really good job. Was that a child or a man? It was a man. Okay. Yeah. He was like 18. I didn't, I, I couldn't tell. He's He's a Swiss actor. Okay. Yeah, no, I I think that he did a good job too. I think Una also did a good job. Kind of reminds me of a child of the corn, but yeah, he looks a little like Jacob, right? From Children of the Corn. Yeah, no, maybe because it's the voice too. When they have that lady's voice in such a way, doing Gump, it also kind of sounds like that preacher from that movie. Yeah, but she did a good job doing Gump's voice, and she also did a great job as the the primary goblin, Blix. I do like Blix. Ah, Blix. 
Are you not the most loathsome of my goblins? Truly, Master. And is your heart black and full of hate? Black as midnight, black as pitch, blacker than the foulest witch. That is why I have called you here. Yeah, and of course everyone loves Billy Barty. Which one is that? He was the, the older dwarf guy. The one that climbs in the oh, tunnel. Oh, Brown Tom or whatever. Um, and then he also is in Willow and you know a bunch of other... He's great. Yeah, I mean, I like those characters. They're very, very secondary, right? But I feel like when they're on screen, sometimes it's it's really, really good. Especially Gump and Ona. I feel like they do. And the, the younger one, the one that was um, changed or he was on Darkness' side but then switched. We don't know his story, really. Oh, Blunder. Blunder. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. a little bit more scenes with him, visual storytelling-wise, in the director's cut that's a little weird. Like, maybe he wasn't actually on their side that it kind of alludes to. And uh, he's played by an actor that actually ended up, I think, playing the... or one of the doubles in Lord of the Rings for the the, the Hobbits and yeah. stuff. Well, that's a fun fact. Do you have any other fun facts for My me? God, do I. Do you? Yes, I do. The underwater scenes were filmed in Silver Springs, Florida for the purity of the water. <laughs> water in Florida is not pure. Chris like did all of his own diving and swimming in waters that, according to Scott, had real alligators 25 feet from where they were filming. That sounds like some fucking wild shit, wild thing shit, and I'm here for it. Scientology could have died back in 1985 <laughs> if only. If only they had not found, they found some less pure water in Florida for him to swim. <laughs> so for uh, for scenes filmed in the forest, every line was dubbed in post-production as the noise in the set was so loud. But we already talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Every single one. Every single That's line. That's why their their lines don't really match their mouths it sometimes. It doesn't in a lot of places in this movie. It's yeah. off-putting. So in the scene where the Lord of Darkness, played by Tim Curry, is going to kill the unicorn, the hill of rocks that Jack climbs was instead going to be a pile of rotting bodies. The filmmakers decided to quickly make them look like rocks as they felt that they looked too disturbing and grotesque and were deemed unnecessary to the scene. But if you look carefully, you can still see the decaying faces or skulls in the pile. And I was looking and and I do see them. Why would they change that? I don't think that's disturbing. It wouldn't have been PG if they're like, he's like clutching people's jawbones and rotting corpses to get up at this. It was 1986 when this came out. I'm sure that it would have passed the MPAA. I don't know. We'll see. Or I guess we won't see. We won't see. (laughs) We'll never see. (laughs) So at one point, Ridley Scott considered Mickey Rooney to play one of the major characters, but he didn't look small enough next to Tom Cruise. Christ. <laughs> Nothing can prepare you for that. Because Mickey Rooney's like four foot nine. He's a little man. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking love this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, everyone talks about how short Tom Cruise is and how he like has to change all these things on set because he's a famous star. Take that, <laughs> Tom Cruise. That's the best fun fact we've ever had on the film flavors. <laughs> oh my god. Just wait, there's some others. I've got two more for you. Okay. So the face of Goblin Blix, played by Alice Platon, was designed after that of Keith Richards from Rolling Stones. <laughs> Stop. I'm going to like fucking laugh myself to death. And you can see it if you watch. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> you totally see it. Now, now that you say it. It looks like Keith Richards. Especially when he's like pointing that fingernail at him. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. 
So Hjortenberg's first draft of Legend of Darkness had Princess Lily slowly transform into a clawed and fur-covered beast who was whipped and sexually seduced by the antagonist, then called Baron Coward de Noir. <laughs> Baron Blackheart? <laughs> Hold on. Whipped. <coughs> sexually whipped. Oh my god, that's like, you remember that scene? In waxwork, where they did the Marquis de Sade, that's exactly what I'm like picturing right now. <laughs> the Baron Court, and now, <laughs> oh my god, fuck this shit. Yeah, that would have been hilarious. Mm. Make that movie, please. <laughs> Princess Lily <laughs> sexually seduced and whipped. Well, those were really fucking fun. Thank you. I needed that laugh. Uh, but we have some questions to ask about Legend, like we do about every movie that we cover here on the Film Flamers. And we're going to start with, is Legend a horror movie? No, but its uh, director's cut is very horror-adjacent. I would say it's horror-adjacent. I would say it's good gateway horror, you know? And, yeah. like, when you have creatures like Darkness and when you have creatures like Meg the Swamp Witch, right? Like, uh, that... That's horror through and through. Like, those are some gnarly fucking characters. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like this movie, its toe is very much on the line yes. of being horror. And right? that's the point of gateway horror. Exactly. So it makes it easy for children like us when we were younger to watch this and become the horror-loving fans that we are today. Yes. Were you scared while watching Legend? When I was a kid, yeah, sure. Certainly, when I was a kid. Uh, that dancing dress scared the shit out of me i used to the dress scared me and meg scared me and uh the tree scared me Hmm. and i think that i when dark by the time darkness appears i was just too enthralled to actually be scared i think i was just in shock yeah i was certainly like taken aback the first time i saw this movie because i was like what the fuck is this today when he comes through the mirror he looks a little muppety you know or the effects look a little shoddy but it's still impressive. But it's still an amazing shot. Yeah, I like it very, very much. But it used to look pristine back in those standards. It was just one of the best effects ever done. I can remember. Um, uh, out of five stars, what did you rate Legend? I had to rate it three stars on Letterboxd because I couldn't rate them separately. I couldn't rate the theatrical or the director's cut separately. Okay. So I rated the uh, the theatrical a three star, and it's barely three star. Three star for me is enjoyable. It's still enjoyable. You know, I, I, I gave the uh, director's cut a four star. It's still got some problems with story and, you know, style versus substance. Um, but it is a whole star's difference, at least. You know, it could have been over a four. But I had to kind of do that uh, because what I ended up rating it overall was a three and a half for the Legend experience mm-hmm. uh, to meet in the middle because I can't rate them separately. I am kind of with you. So um, I feel like if the director's cut sort of existed in a vacuum i feel like they'd be a much better movie right and the thing is is that my nostalgia boner really played a part in this because i was looking forward to watching this movie again after so long Mm -hmm. and i had forgotten a lot about it but remembered a shit ton about it and so i was watching this and i was hideously bored yeah so by the time the title card was over you're, you're already down to a half chub 
Right. And so I'm like, my, my fucking nostalgia boner is going away and they don't make nostalgia Viagra. Right. So, I mean, I have to like watch this movie as a 43 year old adult. And I'm like, it didn't really work for me. And not until darkness is on screen. And then even after he's vanquished, I was just like, okay, quick wrap up. And now we're back to the boring shit from before. And I just didn't enjoy myself watching it. I feel like, I feel like my memories as a kid have sort of, done me a disservice in this particular sense so i gave it three stars yeah and i can understand that um one scene we didn't talk about was when they're just like hurling all those fucking platters to each other in this whole effort to like reflect light and i'm just like this is tedious and it's in both versions it's better in in the director's cut certainly but i mean it's still there it's still tedious and boring because it's this who cares about setting up your fucking equipment? Well, it's not even about the setup. I think some of that was also supposed to be comic relief, right? And so, like, by the time they're hurling these fucking platters at each other, hilariously, you know, um, like, we've already had so much slapstick, I'm over it in the theatrical version. And the director's cut, like we said, there's a little less slapstick quality to it. So having those laughs every once in a while is okay. It sort of breaks the mood and the tension a little bit. But in the theatrical version, this American version, it's just goofy. Well, it's a mismatch, too, because it's like of all the set pieces that we keep cutting back to is like, bring me back to darkness. Bring me back to these other set pieces. Right. Because that set piece in particular, that dungeon where they're doing all that stuff is a very saw. It's very hostile. Right. But they're trying to do slapstick in that environment. And it's not a very interesting environment other than to find yourself in in horror for a moment before we move on, before you escape it. Because we have people in the background hacking up other people and turning them into food. And that's it. It's silhouettes. And that's it, really, except for like some weird little spider demon that's in there um, in the director's cut for like half a second. But But yeah, no, I mean, like three stars out of five for me. Like I, I, I did not like this movie as much as I thought that I was going to. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So there's that. But finally, and some would say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Legend? Darkness. Darkness. Is my destroyer. (laughs) That's right. I got a few things he can destroy. (laughs) I don't know. There is just something about that. And I wonder, was Tim Curry like that muscly? Like, No. No, it's got to be. It's all prosthetics. Yeah. I mean, there's just like. It was like a jacket that he put on. And they would zip up on the back and then they would have to paint down the seams. I was talking to somebody recently that I think my fetish is when you take a horror movie villain like Jason or Michael Myers and you kind of make them kind of buff and sexy or whatever, like in drawings or pictures or whatnot. I don't know why. I just find it hot. And here we have like some sort of like Satan-y looking demon thing. I'm not going to kink shame you. That's Thank you. I appreciate that. But I was just like, dude, darkness kind of hot. It's all built. Certainly horny. I mean. (laughs) Where says whip? (laughs) That's right. Baron Cordenoir. <laughs> Come on. Well, guys, I think that about wraps up this episode of Legend. Please let us know which version you like best, but please, before you make your decision, watch the full director's cut. That's right. Do yourself a favor. I need to do myself a favor and watch the scenes that we skipped past, but. Um, it's definitely on my list you can let us know what you think about both versions and our conversation about them on social media at the film flamers on twitter facebook instagram or tiktok you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or 
Call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Oh, call me your foul-tasting fairy. <laughs> Let me be your juicy fat boy. <laughs> Why is it all Meg's lines? Because <laughs> she's a whore. <laughs> a vain whore. Guys, we didn't have any reviews on this month's Shooting the Flames, and we would very much like to have some in December. So, if you like our podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave us a five-star review and why you like us, and we'll read that on the next Shooting the Flames episode. This wraps up this month's content on the main feed, but head over to Patreon where you will be treated, or have been treated, with a poll for other gateway horror films so that you can decide what we watch and what we talk about. I'm sure that poll's still running over there. Or just about wrapping up. So head over there and vote if you still can. But don't worry if it's closed because we will have many polls in the future. So head over there and join that Patreon family. Guys, we have more content coming out for you in December, including a very, very special episode. Our 200th. That's right. So lots to celebrate in December. So guys, stay tuned. And we'll be covering two Christmas movies-ish, which is Batman Returns. Christmassy. Yeah. And A Nightmare Before Christmas. That's right. A musical. Horror adjacency abounds. Again. That's right. <laughs> Horror adjacency all over the place. And we're going to be singing a whole bunch of Disney songs. So, yay. <laughs> well, Chris, I think it's time for us to uh, head off through this gateway into actual sleep and have some... Foul-tasting fairies? <laughs> have some juicy fat boys? <laughs> no, no, no. Let's have some... Sweet dreams. I really wish people would stop calling me a juicy fat. Unicorn, no! <laughs> Come on, you stupid horse! <laughs> you have to try! You have to care! <laughs> oh my god, if one of those unicorns were named Artax, I swear. <laughs> Artax and Bastion. <laughs>